Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you in the room, as well as those of you joining us online. Grateful to have you with us in that way as well. If you can possibly be here in person at some point, uh, we would be delighted to welcome you, but glad you could do uh, whatever you can to be with us this morning. Hey, before I get into um, this weekend's message, a few uh, housekeeping things, some announcements, some family news as we get ready to head into the holiday season here very quick. Next weekend is a big weekend for us. Uh, a couple things that are happening. We're going to do another pizza with the pastor, but this time we're going to favor the Saturday night crowd. We've been kind of focused a little bit on the Sunday morning pizza with the pastor. This is our kind of our, our entry point for a lot of people who are newer to our community, and so this may not apply to you because you might be a regular on Sunday morning, but if you want to join us next Saturday night, we're going to host one of those after the service. Come hang out. If you're new, feel new, disconnected. Uh, if you want to join us, that's great. And then next Sunday morning, after this hour, we're going to have our AGM, our annual general meeting. Now, this is important for a number of reasons. It's part of our requirement as a society in here in Canada and Alberta. Uh, but for us as a membership and as a community, this is when we uh, kind of look back a little bit on the last year and then look ahead a little bit to next year. We affirm and elect elders to serve on our board. So it's a really important meeting. If you've never attended an AGM, Next weekend, it's going to be really easy for you just to stick around. We're going to do it right here in this room as soon as the service is over, about 10 or 15 minute break, but then we'll have that meeting. We'll try to get it in in probably about 45 minutes to an hour, optimistically, uh, but please consider just sticking around for that next weekend. It's a great way to get uh, better connected around here, know a little bit more about what's going on, all of the information that you might need. Uh, just to be informed is on our website now. You can just click there, see the audited financials, all the stuff, the profiles of the elders and all of that. Uh, that's on our website today. And then we're heading into the Christmas season here in just a couple of weeks. On the first weekend of Advent, we're going to have uh, a real focus on kids, some after-service experiences down the hall. We're going to have the Treehouse Kids uh, doing some stuff for us in the service. On the second week of Advent, Steve Bell is going to be with us. If you know Steve, Steve is a wonderful musician and storyteller and just a deep uh, man of faith. And so he's going to be here to lead worship on both Saturday night and Sunday morning. And then on the Sunday evening, it's a ticketed concert. It is well worth your investment in a few bucks to be part of that concert that night. We're really going to have a fun time. And then if you want to look ahead to what's happening around Christmas itself, our website has been updated, uh, Christmas, uh, spac.ca slash Christmas, and you can see all of the different service times. You can see a little bit more about what's being planned. And then there's an invitation for you to say, I'd like to be part of that because we need a team of leaders to host our community in and around Christmas Eve. So if you can be part of that, uh, now's the time to say, I'm in to help uh, with Christmas this year. All right. Anybody heard of the Barna Group? Show of hands, uh, Barna Group. Yeah, a number of you have. Uh, Barna Research Group. They're kind of a, uh, a faith-based organization that tries to uh, provide actionable insights to church leaders, board members, pastors, that sort of thing. That's their focus. And as a primary tool, they use survey data to sort of get a pulse check on culture. So about 15 years ago, Barna partnered with the Pew Research Group, and they did this very massive study on the reputation of Christ-following people. So their objective was to measure the perception of Christians among irreligious North Americans. So you following me? They, they surveyed tens of thousands of irreligious or non 
uh, people who did not identify as people of faith and asked them about their perceptions of Christians. And so they asked a whole bunch of questions, but there was one question that produced a lot of chatter. Uh, one that generated some headlines and birthed a number of journal articles and even a couple of books. So the question went like this. They, uh, participants were given this long list of words and then asked to choose the word which best describes Christians they know. And there were three top three words used to describe people of faith. In reverse order, I'm going to see, oh, I'll tell you what they were. I'm going to have you guess the last one. But number three on the list, the most common descriptor of Christians was anti-gay or anti-LGBTQ. That was number three. The second highest scoring descriptor was hypocritical. There's a strong feeling among those who don't follow Jesus that those who do don't actually live in a manner consistent with the moral convictions they profess to hold and, and sometimes even inflict on other people. So anybody have a guess as to what number one was? Number one descriptor. Any guesses? Self-righteous. Self-righteous. Close. La Saturday night got this really quick. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to shame you. There it is. Judgmental. Very good. Thank you. Wow. Thanks, Nate. Uh, judgmental. Absolutely. That was number one. Looking down on people who don't hold the same moral or religious values. Now, I remember when I first read that survey and, and started reading some of the articles that it generated and the, the posts, and I began thinking about some of the anti-gay, hypocritical, and judgmental Christians I know and follow. And I started to get a little bit self-righteous. <laughs> now, I'm not a, a huge uh, social media guy. I'm sort of a reluctant Facebook user. I'm very infrequent there. I'm on Instagram mostly just to follow my kids, but I'm a little bit active on Twitter or X. And if you were to go and look at who I follow, you will see that I follow a number of individuals or institutions that go out of their way to profile the bad behavior of Christians, pastors, and, and leaders. And unfortunately, with every arrest, every clergy abuse scandal, and every denominational cover-up, the cynics just have more and more reasons to not take us seriously. Now, I've known I was going to teach on Matthew 7, 1 to 6 for several weeks now. We're in a series of, of messages on the Sermon on the Mount called Deeply Rooted. We're working our way through Jesus' greatest hits, his best stuff, his teachings summarized for us by the gospel writer Matthew in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we've been digging into this comprehensive description of what Jesus expects from his followers. So as I've been preparing for this message... I started thinking about my heart and my attitudes towards some of the people who are, in my opinion, hurting the cause and making ministry more difficult. And you know what I've noticed? That even as I do that, I'm pretty judgy. I'm judging them. If you scroll uh, through my feed on Twitter, I'm constantly judging. Like, I don't comment very much. I rarely retweet, but very regularly when I'm looking at the stuff I'm looking at, I am thinking about people that I'm observing their behavior, and I'm thinking in my brains, you goober, you backwards, head in the sand, uneducated bigot, why can't you, you know, relate to people and, and to the watching world in a way that's healthy and helpful? I don't judge 
non-Christian people that much, but I judge Christians all the time. And, and frankly, most of us do that. I sense I'm not alone in this. Christians are horrible to other Christians, especially other Christians with whom they disagree in terms of theology or religious practice. We, we just attack each other all the time. We kind of eat each other alive. And Jesus seems to know this. He seems to know this about me. Jesus seems to know that there's something about religious systems which produce a, a sort of a posture of arrogance toward other people and ignorance toward ourselves. Jesus has a high expectation for his followers. That's what this series is all about, Jesus' intent for deeply rooted followers. And so he sets the behavior bar high. And now as we turn to Matthew 7, the last chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Jesus knows we're likely to start noticing and even condemning certain people whose following isn't going so well. He knows we're prone to unhealthy, unhelpful judgmentalism, especially toward other believers. He knows that we have a blind spot, and our blind spot is ourselves. And so before Jesus wraps up this famous sermon, he's going to wade into the messiness of judgment and judgmentalism and try to increase our own levels of self-awareness. So I want to read the text. It's only six verses. This is fairly well known. And notice as you uh, see this again, that there's nothing in here that suggests that we're supposed to suspend all judgment. Implied in his comments is something about sober assessment, some level of shrewd judgment. It's necessary for wise living. And sometimes this even includes assessing the behavior of others, but only after we do serious self-examination. So this is the word of the Lord from Matthew 7. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye? When you have a log in your own, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will be able to see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. So much there and so little time, but I'll do the best I can to explore what Jesus is poking at here. And I hope you see that he's not talking about judging in the sense of, of looking at someone's behavior, weighing their decisions and actions in light of your own moral compass and saying, you know, hey, yeah, that's a wrong decision. That's not the right thing to do. Jesus is talking about something more than that. Jesus is speaking about a form of judgmentalism that can become corrosive and destructive. And we all do it. We observe someone's behavior or their appearance, and then to a certain degree, we begin to dehumanize. This is what much of the Sermon on the Mount is about, the way in which we don't love our neighbor in charitable ways. So when we observe someone's behavior or their appearance, instead of recognizing their complexity and affirming their dignity as divine image bearers, we strip all the complexity away and we define them on the basis of their choice or the behavior that we disagree with. We label them, we categorize them, we say things like, yeah, I know what people like that. I, I know that kind of prayer. I know what they're all about. I know what they stand for. And sometimes, uh, 
Sometimes we take it even a step further by concluding that God is with us in our opinion. And this, I think, is what Jesus is really poking at. So let's go back through the verses we read and let's think about them a little bit. Let's play with their implications. This is all about how we relate to each other and even how we invite people into our lives to point out our flaws and our poor decisions. Now, admittedly, this is um, messy, complicated work here. Jesus knows this, and so he gives us some wisdom, some guidance on this, and I think his wisdom is profound. So let's look at the wisdom of Jesus in bite-sized pieces. This is verse one again. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Now, the dominant word there, of course, is judge. I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, but there's plenty of original language scholarship that's easily accessible online and in commentaries. The Greek word used here in Matthew's uh, gospel for judge is a very common uh, Greek word. Uh, the English word judge is very common as well, but it has a wide range of meanings, just like the original word has a wide range of meanings. So the Greek word translated judge is krino. It means to decide. It means to look. One way of, of using the word is just to look at a couple of options and then make a choice. Like this, let's do a little straw poll here. Strawberry or raspberry? Strawberry, oh, overwhelmingly, strawberry, good. Tim Hortons or Starbucks? Ooh, ooh, not sure where that one landed. Uh, beef or chicken? <laughs> okay, so that's how we just kind of make a decision. We weigh decisions all the time. We make choices. We assess pros and cons, and, and we choose. That's one way to use that word judge. Now, there's another angle on it, uh, because again, we're talking about a range of meanings. Another way to uh, think about this word is to have like a panel of judges making a decision on something. It could be uh, a group of people deciding on the winner of a skating competition, where there's subjectivity in play, or maybe consider how in hockey, how the, the puck goes over the glass and the two referees will gather the two linesmen and they'll, they'll come together and they will say as a group, you know, did it get tipped? You know, did it hit the glass? Was it a straight shot over? They're making a decision about whether or not it's a, a delay of game penalty. So they come together and they make a judgment supposedly based on their good eyesight and all of that kind of stuff. And sometimes, this is another way to look at this word, there are legally trained appointed judges whose job it is to make complex decisions about matters brought before them. They're asked to make decisions about somebody else's choices, including choices that might not be uh, wise and even criminal. So there's a wide range of meaning to the English word judge, but our best understanding is that Jesus isn't suggesting that we suspend critical thinking when making significant moral decisions. Because if you've been with us at all for the last five or six weeks, if, as we've been through Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus is really, really serious about our behaviors, and he has high expectations for his followers. He's been talking about anger and lust and truthfulness and integrity and how to love your neighbor. So a deeply rooted follower is someone who is growing in their ability to make good, sound, moral judgments, to discern good and bad, and to do that sometimes collectively. All of this requires judgment. So Jesus is not suspending all judgment, but his concern seems to be about a certain kind of judging, a certain way. Verse 2, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. 
So again, check it out. He's not saying set aside all judgment, but as we move through these six verses, the message is there's a way to judge. There's a way to judge and make decisions that's fair and it's reasonable. Judge, first clue is judge how you would like to be judged. Of course, there's a way of judging that's unfair, including when someone assumes motive or reads into behaviors and fills in gaps. Nobody likes to be judged unfairly. And so Jesus suggests a way to judge that goes down a little easier. He says, hey, just judge people the way you would like to be judged. Now, to round this out just a little bit, I want to show you something from what is arguably the most helpful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in the scriptures themselves. There's a letter in the New Testament, the letter from James, and James, we think, is the brother or half-brother of Jesus, and some New Testament scholars think that maybe 75% of the letter that James writes and is in our Bibles is his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount for the next generation. He's thinking about how to apply the words of Jesus to the next generation of followers. So let's go to James for a moment and see how he tries to add some color to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. This is James. James says, don't speak evil against each other. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? So notice what James is saying and what he's not saying. He's, he's not evaluating anybody else. He's not sizing someone up and determining whether their behavior is right or wrong. That's not what he's focused on. What he's focused on is your response to someone else. And he uses the same word Jesus does, crino, judge. But James says, if we call something out in someone else uninvited, we might be speaking evil or speaking against, or other translations will say slander. He's talking about observing someone's actions and making moral judgments about their behavior and then going to a place you ought not go, making assumptions, assessing the why, attacking the character, characterizing, categorizing, and then even advertising your assessment, like click, send, you know, whatever, post, talking poorly about others, looking down on them. And this gets especially dark when we assume that God, again, is agreeing with us, that we have God on our side. Now, you probably don't think in these terms. I rarely do yet if I think about it. What's often going on when I'm sizing people up and making internal judgments about them, I rather routinely assume that God is with me. Many of us if we're willing to admit it, we'll take this little extra step in our minds and assume we know why somebody's doing what they're doing, and then we sort of imagine Jesus standing next to us, kind of looking over at somebody else. And, and we, um, again, we don't do this, you know, consciously, but probably a little bit, you know, in our minds and in our spirits. We sort of imagine us standing here with Jesus, looking over at somebody and saying, can you believe that guy? And we look at Jesus and we sort of imagine Jesus going, I know, I know, can you believe it? What a doofus, right? Like we kind of almost have that kind of an exchange going on mentally. It's so easy to develop a sense of moral uprightness 
about someone or something and treat people accordingly. We all do this, even if it's just internal. We imagine Jesus standing with us in agreement. This may be the best way for me to illustrate this whole message. If you tune out everything else, just get the next two minutes or so, because this is, a, this is just wisdom from Jesus. We, we ought to be discerning. We ought to think critically about what we see in ourselves and even what we see in other people. But when we size a situation up, we shouldn't just assume that Jesus is on our side. If in your mind it's you and Jesus against someone else, if your posture or if your attitude toward another person includes sort of a distance like they're over there and me and Jesus are over here, it's them on one side and, and you and the Father on this side, someone over there is not behaving like you think, we think they ought to behave, you're tempted then also maybe to think that God has appointed you to be the one to you know, condemn them and point out their flaws. What James says, what Jesus says, is this here, this thing, them, us, that's a bad look. If you ever find yourself on one side of the line and you think you're over here with Jesus and you're looking back at someone else who's over there, the reality is you're on the wrong side of the line because all of us are over here. That's the gospel. That, that's the reality. We're all on this side of the line. The reality is we're all over here. We're all over here looking over at Jesus. That's reality. If we take our stand over here, we're putting ourselves in the posture of God. If we look over and see someone else who we think is clearly immoral or wrong in the eyes of God, well, that's not really the point. The teaching in this whole section is about the inappropriateness of me and Jesus against someone else. And in the brilliance of Jesus, he gives us some wisdom on how to discern where we're standing. Are we standing against or with? And as Jesus moves into this teaching now, he cracks a joke. I kid you not. I think Jesus is being a little funny. Now, you don't probably think of Jesus as being particularly, you know, knee-slapping funny, that kind of thing. But I really do think Jesus is attempting to lighten the mood here with what he says. It's the famous image. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think about saying to your friend, let me help you get that speck out of your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Jesus is hilarious. Um, he's talking about this speck in an eye. Now, you know that feeling of a speck in your eye, right? A little, little irritation, a little eyelash, a little bug, a little crumb, a little something, something. And then he points out in this silly, exaggerated way, a person with a giant log or picture a big two by four coming right out of their eye socket. That's the image, something larger than your head coming out of your eye. It's supposed to be funny. Now, it's a vivid, exaggerated image worthy of thinking about and thinking about the implications. And there may be multiple implications of this. First, your friend may very well have a speck in their eye. Jesus is not saying here there's no speck. There definitely is. Jesus says, yeah, it's true. They've got an issue. They've got a character flaw. Yeah, they're doing something dumb. Uh, it's legit. But before you even think about addressing it, before you consider a confrontation, you need to have done a whole bunch of work to get yourself in the appropriate mindset that that encounter that you're thinking about having becomes healing and helpful and not destructive and not counterproductive. 
All of that is jammed into this little metaphor. And before we leave this little metaphor, a uh, couple other implications, ways to think about this. Where is the uh, object emerging from? The eye, it's not the gut or the backside, it's coming out of an eye. So what's the implication there? Impaired vision. So here's the teaching. If I aspire to be a deeply rooted follower of Jesus, and I see in someone a, a behavior or an action I think is contrary to the way of Jesus and may actually damage them, and my first thing I should do is assume that my vision is impaired. You tracking with me? Like, I see something, boy, that looks bad. The first thing I do is recognize my vision may be impaired. You've got your sin issues. I've got my sin issues. And sin affects our ability to see clearly. We should always assume our vision is impaired. Assumptions are rarely good, but this is one where it's okay to assume. Assume you don't have the full story. Human beings are utterly complex. Our motives for doing what we do are multifaceted. They're convoluted. And Jesus says, just assume that you don't have 20-20 vision when you assess something and you think you know what you're seeing. Don't assume you know the full story and what's contributing to their actions. You cannot see clearly with a pole coming out of your head. The need for serious and sober reflection about assumptions is implied in this big old plank metaphor. And another implication takes us right to the heart of the gospel of Jesus, the heart of the message of the kingdom. If I assume out of a humble posture that I cannot clearly see everything I think I can see in somebody else, and this humbles me enough that I'm able to take up residence with them on this side of things, this gives me some perspective that hopefully drives me to be more careful and more hesitant about when and how I approach somebody else. And even if they clearly have a speck, I should assume that my own sin and my own pride and my issues are just as serious, maybe even more grievous than the ones I'm noticing over here. When I think I'm guilty of... What I think I'm guilty of is what most modern Christ-following people are guilty of, and it's just arrogance toward others and ignorance toward ourselves. Deeply rooted followers need self-awareness, the ability to own our own issues, issues that are just as serious as the ones we think we're seeing in somebody else. And I don't think Jesus is calling us toward self-hatred or self-loathing. He's just pushing us to do what all deeply rooted followers of Jesus should do, which is make a commitment to self-reflection and honest self-evaluation. It's fair and it's fine to assess and to discern, even to judge a little bit, but not to condemn. And we're never told not to have a tough conversation, but we're just challenged to bring the heart of the gospel into our tough conversations. And what's the heart of the gospel? Well, it's more than this, but it begins with the realization that I'm over here in desperate need of God's grace, which comes to me through Jesus. Jesus, the one who is absolutely qualified to judge, does not condemn. He doesn't condemn me for my massive sin issue. He loves me. And he gave his life for me, and through his death and resurrection, he gives life to me and to you. Jesus was, in fact, rather condemning of a few people. Ironically, it was mostly religious people who didn't think they needed grace. These are the folks 
that he was pretty hard on. But for those who came his way out of this humble, empty posture, broken and battered, he extended absolute grace. And when I think in these terms, this is the realization that allows me to live in solidarity over here, not in judgment with other flawed people on this side of the line. Okay, we are just about done, but before we wrap this up, I need to address the odd thing that Jesus says in verse 6. This is a verse that has confounded readers of Matthew since the beginning. Uh, Here it is in all its confusing glory. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They, the pigs, will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. I thought seriously about stopping at verse 5 because this is a really complicated little verse. Um, Jesus didn't say, you know, don't judge people, uh, but now he's seemingly judging people. Like, who's he calling pigs? What is going on here? Some translations say dogs. Well, if you do any digging on this verse, uh, any serious digging, you'll see multiple different perspectives and views on what Jesus means here. So I'm going to give you the one that I like, that I think is right. It might not be right, but I think it's right. Anyway, Think of this as another little parable, similar to the previous one about the board in the eye. I would encourage you not to read this as allegory. In allegory, everything is symbolic and it represents something else or someone. Sometimes Jesus teaches in allegories, but most often he teaches in parables. And parables are short little stories that have a main point. And I think in parables, you should try to discern the main point and apply that. Uh, So think of a couple of famous parables, like uh, the prodigal son. Most people know that one. The father uh, gives the inheritance to the kid early, goes and squanders it, all of that. Um, Now, I hesitate to say there's one main point in the parable of the prodigal son because, like, we did a message series a few years ago where we did, like, four or five straight weeks on the prodigal son. It's a packed uh, little parable. But I think the main point of the parable is the character of God on display as seen in the father who's waiting for the son to come home and he extends grace to that son who comes in repentance. I think that's the main point. Uh, Another parable, the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus tells the story of uh, a guy who's beat up and left for dead. A couple of people come along and don't help him. And then along comes the third person, a Samaritan, who's the sworn mortal enemy of the Jew, the last person that you would ever think would help this person. And that's how the story ends. The main point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is not it's good to be helpful to people, while I think it is helpful. Uh, The parable is told when Jesus is asked a question, who is my neighbor? And so when you really unpack the parable of the Good Samaritan, the main point of the story is your neighbor is the person you find most difficult to love. The person you find most difficult to love is the person that you're probably called to love. That's kind of the main point of a parable like that. So we get into trouble when we treat parables like allegories. And in the case of this verse, don't waste time thinking about, you know, who the pig represents and what the pearl is and all of that. The point of the story is, this little story is, someone has something of great value to them and they're stoked about it and they want to share it with everybody, but there, were, there will be other people who don't value this thing the way they do. Let me tease this out a little bit more. What do you think a pig values more than anything? 
Food, yes, not pearl. Dogs are the same way. Our, we had a dog for a few years. He loved food more than anything. I, you know, Crane, no offense, but he loved you so much because you fed him. You know, like, the, 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 all food, food-driven, animal, like these kind of food, food-driven. Here's the point. This is about a disconnect between what you value and what others value. Sure, I can barge in and start giving my opinions on what somebody else is doing and how it might be inappropriate, but that rarely goes well. This is a little parable about something that's precious to me, a conviction that's important to me, but it's not perceived in the same way by other people. So to barge in and throw my valuable thing or throw my conviction at someone who doesn't care is not usually helpful. It might even backfire and provoke the opposite reaction that I'm hoping for. Again, what does the pig value? Food. Give it something appropriate for what it values. That, I think, is the point. I think what Jesus is doing here is encouraging wisdom for how we go about engaging with others. And it's really kind of another example of how to love neighbor as yourself. How would I like to be addressed when I'm challenged? Am I, am I coming out with guns blazing to shove Jesus' truth down someone's throat? That is not likely to go well. Truth almost always requires a bridge, a relational bridge most of the time. And the heavier the truth load, follow me, the, the heavier the truth load, the stronger the bridge needs to be, meaning... If you've got something really weighty to share with somebody and, you know, you've kind of done that work of self-assessment and you're ready to go, um, if it's not kind of transmitted on the basis of well-established, healthy relationship principles, it's not likely to be received well. This pearl and pig part is complicated, but I'm almost certain it involves wise discernment and careful relationship building as a prerequisite to sharing God's truth with someone who might be running away from it. So here's how I'd like to close. Um, this is one of those times, um, given the subject matter, that I think a little reflection is helpful. So I'm just going to give you a moment here. I'm going to give you a couple of prompts and just invite you to be open to God's spirit and open to how God may uh, reveal something to you, maybe about your attitudes towards some others that you maybe disagree with a little bit. So why don't we go to a, a prayerful posture for a moment, if you're comfortable, close your eyes. Um, but just for a few moments here, invite God's Spirit to prompt you about your judgmentalism and ways in which you've been condemning in an unjustified way. So just pause for a minute and ask God's Spirit to convict you. And if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, would you thank him for his grace, the grace extended to you, and acknowledge where you stand in relationship to him, that you stand in solidarity with other sinful people who have been extended grace. Would you just thank him for, for grace for you? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the sweetness of spirit that exists in this place. 
These are good days for us as a church community. And there's a lot of laughter, there's joy, there's mutual support and edification in this place. On occasion, we, we can be hard on each other. And certainly within the, the greater community around us, there is so much anger and hostility and polarization. And God, I pray that the people of Sherwood Park Alliance would be like a, a pleasant aroma of peace and grace and understanding and sympathy uh, in our community. That maybe even the, the germ of just recognizing the grace that's been extended to us would so permeate our spirits that we are peacemakers in our community. And, and may you continue to preserve and protect the unity that exists here, but may it extend beyond the walls of this place through us as we seek to be conduits of your goodness and your grace. So help us, Father, to enter this week on mission for you to bring your presence and your goodness. In your name we pray these things. Amen. And thanks, everybody, for leaning in and being here this morning. Have a great rest of the day.